Buzz Aldrin reached up and opened the hatch over his head, exposing himself in total to the vacuum outside. Clad in a bulky EVA suit, he prepared to become the fifth American ever to walk in space. Those who had come before had laid the groundwork, but there was still much writing on the coming EVA. Thus far, any work done in space outside of a vehicle had proven difficult, tiring, and dangerous. If Aldrin couldn't prove with this flight that a spacewalk could be done safely and efficiently, then there was a chance the plans for the impending moon program would have to be revised. For NASA, this was it. If they couldn't master the spacewalk on this flight, Project Apollo might be imperiled. Welcome to Episode 35 of Frontier of Infinity, The Great Enigma. Last time, we discussed the flight of Gemini 11, which saw Pete Conrad and Richard Gordon set a fresh altitude record when they flew higher than any humans before them by using their Agena docking target to push their Gemini to a maximum altitude of 553 miles, or about 1,373 kilometers. They also got in a good deal more rendezvous and docking practice and carried out many successful experiments, including one which proved that artificial spin gravity could be created on a spacecraft. However, the one major failure to be seen on Gemini 11 was its inability to crack the spacewalk enigma. While there was extravehicular activity undertaken during the flight, it had to be cut short, as Richard Gordon began to quickly fatigue while he worked in space. With the end of Project Gemini fast approaching, NASA was eager to finally master the EVA before Project Apollo began to fly. But now, they'd have only one flight with which to do it. We'll discuss that mission today, Gemini 12. The planning for Gemini 12, like all of NASA's space missions, had begun long before the mission was to fly, and before even Gemini 11 had left the ground. It was originally planned that Gemini 12 would see the return of the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, the bulky, complex machine which was intended to provide thrust, life support, and communications out in space. It had initially flown on Gemini 9, but Gene Cernan had suffered so terribly during his EVA that he never got the chance to actually activate and use it. Despite the more successful EVAs on Geminis 10 and 11, it was decided that the AMU was too risky, and thus it was cut from the mission plan. NASA wanted to approach the EVA problem more carefully than in the past, and with just 120 minutes of planned EVA time to work with, there was no room to complicate things with experimental machinery. In addition to cutting the AMU, the mission planners wanted to do everything they could to streamline the EVA process and make it less strenuous on the astronaut. The first such measure was a suite of changes to the EVA training the astronauts received before the mission. 
analysis of the training received by the other astronauts who had completed spacewalks revealed that zero-g flights in airplanes were not terribly useful, and thus the number of these were reduced. The period of weightlessness produced by a diving aircraft was simply too short to be really useful, just 15 to 20 seconds on average. This encouraged the trainees to work quickly rather than slowly and methodically as was best in space, and it guaranteed them a rest period in between each burst of weightlessness as the plane climbed to altitude again. This was not accurate to conditions in space. However, underwater training had proven to be quite useful, teaching the slow, careful movements which were required in space. As such, underwater training was emphasized for Gemini 12. A feature of the Gemini capsule which had changed with every flight since Gemini 9 was the number and position of the hand and footholds which dotted the skin of the spacecraft. More were added with each flight, but it was never sufficient to provide an astronaut with enough control. The number of holds and their positions would change yet again for Gemini 12, though this time there was an emphasis placed on allowing the astronaut to plant his feet and leave his hands free to work. This would reduce the stress of a spacewalk a great deal, no longer requiring the astronaut to work one-handed while they attempted to cling to their spacecraft and keep from drifting off into space. It would hopefully reduce the physical demands required to stay in position, and would make the work itself both easier and quicker to perform. But just who would be making use of these improvements? The flight would be commanded by James Lovell, who had previously flown aboard Gemini 7. For more information on how he came to join the astronaut corps, you can revisit our episode entitled The Twins. Lovell would be joined by Edwin Buzz Aldrin, who would be making his first spaceflight. Aldrin's road to space began before he was even born. His father, Edwin Eugene Aldrin, was a student of Robert Goddard, one of the three founding fathers of rocketry we discussed in the first regular episode of this show. As such, the younger Edwin Aldrin grew up exposed to rocketry and ideas about early spaceflight. But like most of his peers, he was eventually drawn to join the military, receiving an undergraduate degree from West Point and graduating with honors in 1951. From West Point, he moved on to the Air Force, where he learned to fly fighter jets and was deployed to Korea, flying 62 combat missions in the F-86 Sabre and scoring two aerial kills against Soviet-built MiG-15s. When he returned to the U.S., he went back to school, winning a Ph.D. in astronautics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. It was that doctorate, combined with the thesis he wrote for it, which would eventually earn him his nickname among the astronaut corps. He was selected for the third astronaut class, and came to be known as Dr. Rendezvous for his doctoral thesis on the mathematics of orbital rendezvous. With the flight plan finalized and the crew assembled, there was one issue yet remaining to be solved. There was no Agena target available for the mission following the loss of the Gemini 9 Agena. Luckily, though, the qualification model, designated Agena 5001, was made ready to fly, and it would serve for the mission. On the day of launch, November 11, 1966, Pad 14 was bathed in flame as the Agena shot for orbit, 
and it was followed shortly by Gemini 12 with Aldrin and Lovell aboard. They made a clean insertion into orbit and then were able to start gaining on the Agena, making radar contact without issue. But as they continued to encroach on it, the radar data began to become sporadic. As the mission progressed, the quality of the data continued to decline, and at just 75 miles, or about 103 kilometers from the target, it became so poor that the onboard computer rejected it entirely. With the radar out, Lovell and Aldrin would have to rely on old-fashioned navigation to make the rendezvous. This technique had failed on Gemini 9, but with none other than Dr. Rendezvous on board, perhaps there was still hope. Aldrin took the sextant in hand, and began to take bearings which he fed directly into the computer himself. Lovell, at the controls, steered the capsule based on Aldrin's inputs, and just over four hours into the mission, the capsule was docked with the Agena. To make this feat even more impressive, they managed to dock using less fuel than any other crew before them. From this point, Aldrin and Lovell were to engage in docking and cast-off practice just like Gemini 11 had done, and despite some alignment issues, both astronauts got a chance to practice. Once this was finished, the mission plan called for a burn with the Agena engine to place the combined spacecraft into a higher orbit, but during its ascent, the Agena's onboard systems detected a drop in combustion chamber pressure which could not be accounted for. As this could have been the result of a serious problem with the Agena stage, flight director Glenn Lunny pulled the plug on the use of the main engine. The climb to higher orbit as planned would have to be scrapped, but there were still the secondary engines on the Agena that could be used. While they wouldn't fill in for the main engine, there was another objective the astronauts could pursue which had been cut from the initial flight plan. A solar eclipse was due to occur over South America. The secondary engines would be sufficient to push the Gemini into position to get a look at it, so that it could be photographed by the crew. A pair of phasing maneuvers brought the Gemini in line with the Eclipse, and Lovell and Aldrin snapped photos through the windows of the capsule, making the most of a less-than-optimal situation. After this experiment and a sleep period were completed, it was time to start in on the real meat of the mission, the extravehicular activity. This began with a preparation phase, during which Aldrin made ready to leave the capsule. He was ready to go on time, and then popped the hatch and stood on his seat, exposing only his head and the top of his torso outside the spacecraft. This was another stand-up EVA, as had been completed by Michael Collins on Gemini 11. Less strenuous and less dangerous, it would nevertheless allow Aldrin to warm up after a fashion for the more complex EVAs to come. He released some garbage overboard, and then attached a camera to the outside of the capsule. He also collected a micrometeorite experiment from outside, and then returned to his seat, closing the hatch behind himself. The whole process took nearly two and a half hours, but Aldrin was feeling pretty good come the end. He wasn't overly tired, and he was ready to move forward with the additional EVAs planned later in the flight. After some time to rest... Aldrin made ready to leave the capsule again for a more difficult and more involved EVA. This time, he attached a camera to the outside of the spacecraft and moved his way toward the Agena stage at the nose of the capsule. He was able to crawl over to the Agena with striking ease. 
He could move without the terrible fatigue and strain which had vexed Cernan and Gordon, and once he was on the Agena, he clipped himself in place and attached a line to the Agena which would be used for an upcoming experiment. He made his way back to the capsule, exchanged the camera on the outside, and then advanced to the aftmost end of the capsule. There was a workstation established there which allowed him to hook his feet into place, leaving his hands free to work. This was a vastly superior arrangement than anything the other spacewalking astronauts had seen, and it allowed Aldrin to undertake a number of actions and tasks which would simulate different jobs needed to be completed in space. This included the use of a torque wrench and the connection of electrical sockets. He attached an additional 30-meter tether to the rear of the capsule and then made his way back to the cabin after spending more than two hours in space. Through all of this activity, Aldrin remained largely spry. He took many short rests, which helped to keep him from tiring while outside the capsule. With the EVA complete, the tether experiment could get underway. This would be a similar experiment to the one conducted previously on Gemini 11, during which the capsule and the Agena were undocked, but connected via a tether. They would then be separated and spun around each other in the attempt to tighten the line which connected them via a gravity gradient. Just like the previous attempt, the tether behaved erratically, but Lovell and Aldrin managed to stabilize the two spacecraft and kept them so for four hours before the experiment was completed. A third EVA was attempted on the fourth day of flight, during which Aldrin dumped some more trash overboard. He completed more photography, as well as a few other experiments, spending just 55 minutes in space. Like the others, it went well, and marked the final EVA of Project Gemini. One final task remained. To pull off a fully automated re-entry sequence. After it was initiated, the crew merely monitored the instruments as the computer handled the rest. At one point, a pocket containing books and other tools was jostled off of the bulkhead and wound up in Lovell's lap, but he managed to keep it pinned between his knees before the capsule jolted into the ocean just three miles from the aircraft carrier USS Wasp. Project Gemini came to an end on November 15, 1966. Gemini 12 had been a resounding success, most notably because of Aldrin's excellent EVAs. The fears that EVAs were not truly viable to perform work in space were banished. Humans could work in space, and it meant that any concerns regarding the feasibility of Project Apollo likewise evaporated. NASA would turn their attentions toward Apollo fully in the coming months, but that's something we'll cover in future episodes. Next time, we're going to revisit the Soviet space program and examine the manner in which they moved forward following the death of Sergei Kurlyov. Kurlyov's death was a terrible blow to the Soviet space program, but they're not giving up yet. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Mm-hmm.